to be focusing on the gospel and works. And this is a very important counterpoint to point to last week as we focused on the gospel and grace. Many times with the emphasis on living out the gospel, we can be, come away with the idea that somehow this is something we're to do in our own strength, that it's something we have to do to please God, it's something we have to do to earn something, or something we have to do to make something happen. We need to understand this week, and you've probably already been working on this in your workbooks, and others of you will begin this week, Pastor Phil Hill's done an excellent job of helping us to understand the relationship between grace and works because there's a healthy balance there. This week we're gonna be learning about the fact that we can't do anything to save ourselves and we can't do anything to save anybody else. But on the other hand, if the gospel is lived out, there is a work that God has called us to do. In fact, it says in Ephesians 2 and verse 10 that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But there's a difference if we're doing the work or God is doing the work. And so we're gonna have a week of focus in our message and also in the workbook and in our discussion together in small groups about what it really looks like for God to do his work through us. We're even gonna have a time in the end of the workbook where we're gonna be talking about the subject of the Sabbath and what it really means to fulfill that. And so today, as we begin this on this message for this week, I hope everything we've been working on together, the things we've been learning, will keep building and helping us to grow as we learn what it really means to be a reproducing follower of Jesus who lives out the good news of Jesus Christ. Hey, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be continuing on in our study of the gospel, living the good news of Jesus Christ. Today we're focusing on the gospel and works. It's kind of the counterbalance, as I mentioned, to last week's focus on grace. And uh, when Paul was writing this, he wanted people to understand that though we can't do anything to save ourselves, there is a work that God has created us to do. And this is what he said in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray for a moment. Father, the gospel is a powerful message. It's the message of good news in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We can't earn this, but there's something you have very important for us to do. And I pray today that you will help us as we focus on this section of the gospel and works, teaching us to live out the good news of Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen. Well, in this uh, election year, it's not uncommon to find more and more people who want to throw their hat in the ring, especially for president. This last week, I discovered that uh, former New York mayor Michael Blomberg may be throwing his hat in for the presidential run as an independent. Apparently, he's confident of his chances, not only in the race for president, but also in his chances to get into heaven. I was reading an interview that was done by him in the New York Times, and it said during an interview before his 50th college reunion, which was held just a couple of years ago, 
Michael Blumberg confessed that his mortality has started dawning on him at age 72. He also said that he's been sobered by how many of his former classmates have passed away, but as the author went on to say after the interview in the New York Times, if Blumberg senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt, he has little doubt about what would await him at the judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoke cessa- smoking cessation, he said with a grin, quote, I'm telling you, if there's a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to stop to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now, I don't know anything about his faith in Jesus or anything else, but I can tell you this, based on that approach, he's right about one thing. When it comes to him getting into heaven, he ain't even close. (laughs) A few years ago, the great theologian Muhammad Ali, you know, the boxing legend, he was asked in a Reader's Digest interview, how you get to heaven. Here's what he said. One day, we're all going to die. God's going to judge us, our deeds, our good deeds and our bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. Muhammad Ali is not the only one who believes that. That is the majority view of most people. That God operates on some kind of a final accounting system that in the end, if your math ends up right, you're in. And the list of good deeds that tilt the scale is long, is really long. I don't know about you, but I'm even more attuned than ever at opportunities to share the gospel. Just in the last week or so, I had a chance to share with a Muslim man who came to our house to fix something, and that was a very interesting conversation. And uh, with a guy at a cell phone store recently while I was there doing the long, arduous process of fixing something on a cell phone. And uh, it's amazing the conversations you get into and what people tell you about how they're approaching God in heaven. And the list of what people tell you of of, uh, how they're going to get in is amazing. I'm going to get in because I go to church. I'm going to get in because I got baptized. I'm going to get in because I take communion. I'm going to get in because I prayed a prayer. I'm going to get in because I teach a class. I'm going to get in because I read my Bible. I'm going to get in because I help the sick. I'm going to get in because I feed the poor. I'm going to get in because I fight the spread of AIDS. How about that one? I'm going to get in because I donate money. I volunteer. I serve at a local soup kitchen. The list goes on and on and on. You see, people have a general propensity to think that if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, of course God's going to let me in. That's because most people think they're already on their way to heaven, and the only reason they're going to go to hell is if they just screw it up somehow. So if I'm basically going there anyway, then all I have to do is make sure my good outweigh the bad. The Apostle Paul had a very different view. He said in Ephesians 2, verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, he goes on to say. Now, because of that focus on no work, some professing Christians have gone the whole opposite extreme. They say things like, well, since I'm saved by faith and not by works, then I'll say a prayer, I'll trust Jesus, and I'll live however I want. 
After all, God wants me to be happy, and if I'm involved in some sin, God will forgive me anyway. It's not by works. Which is why Paul gave the counterbalance to that in verse 10 when he said, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Which can lead people asking, what is the gospel in regards to good works? Paul said, it's not by works. Then he said, we're created for these works. It's a seeming contradiction. We are in week three of our discipling campaign, the gospel, living the good news of Jesus Christ. Week one, we learned what the gospel is. It's the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection and appearing of Jesus. It is the good news of the salvation that comes to all who believe and receive it. It is the life-saving message that is to be proclaimed by what we say and how we live. In week two, we learned that the gospel comes to us by grace, that we are dead in our sin and powerless to save ourselves that God saves us, sustains us, and glorifies us with Christ all by his grace. And we can't do anything to save ourselves. It is, Paul said, by grace you have been saved. And this week, the Apostle Paul seems to be declaring a contradiction. We're saved by grace, not by works, but God created us to do good works. Paul in Ephesians 2 is going to be revealing to us the gospel is the good news of our good works. And what is that good news? The good news is our works can't save us. And the good news is our works do bring glory to God. The gospel is the good news that our works cannot save us. Paul said in verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I don't know how many of you have ever been to L.L. Bean in Maine or at least seen one of their catalogs. They're kind of a high-end outdoors company. They make really good products, have all kinds of offers and things. I was reading a piece by David Neff, who's the editor-in-chief and vice president of Christianity Today International, when he said, this morning I received, from, I received the latest promotional email from clothing provider I really like to patronize, L.L. Bean. And he said, I read the subject line with interest. It said, double coupon dollars, our gift to you. And he said, the old sales trick worked. The promise of something free compelled me to open the email. But the first words I read from the email itself gave me a different message. It said, earn double coupon dollars. I said, wait a minute. Didn't the subject line just say it was a gift to me? Now I open it up and it said they want me to earn the gift. You and I are so used to that approach, we don't even think twice about it anymore. Of course you don't get something for nothing. So earning something as a gift becomes second nature to us. People often see salvation like that, which is why so many people believe, well, yeah, I believe that salvation is the gift of God, but I have to do something. I have to do something. Often salvation is presented like that. Churches don't mean to do it. I don't mean to do it if I've ever done it. But it sounds like this. It's, there's, there's so many versions of this. You have to believe in Jesus to be saved and speak in tongues. You have to believe in Jesus to be saved and exhibit some other spiritual gift. 
You have to believe in Jesus to be saved and then get baptized. You have to believe by faith and then you have to do good works. You have to believe by faith, but you have to do your devotions every day. You have to believe by faith and you've got to do whatever. You see, it's a faith plus some kind of works on our part. And whenever you hear faith in Jesus plus anything, you're not hearing the gospel. The good news of the gospel is salvation is a gift not earned by good works. Paul said you can't do anything to earn this gift, and you don't have to. That's why he said in verse 8, it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. By grace you've been saved through faith. This grace we learned last week is God's unmerited favor, meaning you can't earn it. He chose us and saved us due to no merit or effort of our own. This last week we had a lot of heartburn over this predestination stuff and election stuff. You got to wrestle with God with that because he said he chose you before the foundation of the world. And he chose you when you had no works. And it wasn't based on the fact he knew what works you were going to do because then it would still be on works that he chose you. You've been saved through faith. The firm persuasion and conviction that the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection and appearing of Jesus is true. And so you take God at his word and you receive Christ into your life. A. Skevington Wood, who's a commentator and a principal of the Cliff College in England, once wrote, Paul reminds his readers that they owe their salvation entirely to the undeserved favor of God. Grace is at once the objective, operative, and instrumental cause. The way we take hold of that cause, he said, is by faith. Faith, however, he said, is not a quality, not a virtue, not a faculty. It is not something man can produce. It is simply a trustful response that is itself evoked by the Holy Spirit. And he said, lest faith should be in any way misinterpreted, as man's contribution to his own salvation, Paul immediately adds a writer to explain that nothing is of our own doing, but everything is the gift of God. Pastor Phil Hill, in his very insightful devotionals this week in the workbook, said salvation is God's gift to Christians. We can't earn it. It comes by faith. And unless we get puffed up thinking we're so great because we have faith, the Apostle Paul makes it clear even the faith is a gift from God. You are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So salvation is a gift. A gift of God's grace. Even the faith to believe it is a gift. The good news of God's grace. And our good works had nothing to do with it. You see, the reason it's not our good works is at least threefold. First of all, our problem is sin. Sin separates us from God, and it always has and always will. And if we die with sin in our lives, it'll separate us from God forever. Sin can't be atoned for by our good works. It has to be atoned for by the shedding of blood, perfect blood that can pay for sin. There has to be a death to pay for sin. Now, you can pay for your own sin, and without Jesus, you will. 
you will die in your sin, but then it's too late. You see, the, your death isn't going to help you to be saved. It's too late then. So you need somebody else to do that work in your place. That someone is Jesus. So you can't be saved by your own works. That's why the gospel says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Secondly, if salvation is by works, there's no assurance we're saved. Because I would ask you, okay, then how many good works do you have to have to counterbalance your sin? There's never any assurance. You don't know half the sins you commit. Neither do I, but God knows them all. So here I am working along trying to improve my standing in the final accounting, and the whole time I have no assurance because I won't know to the end whether I did enough. So if salvation's by works, there's no assurance because then I won't know till I'm there, and then it's too late. Thirdly, if we're saved by works, then our boast is in our achievements and not the cross of Christ. That's why Paul said, not by works so that no one can boast. You know what we do. We'd be standing there in heaven looking at the guy next to us going, man, I deserve to be here better than you deserve to be here. My faith was greater than your faith. I trusted God for this, 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 this. You only trusted God for this. God says, there ain't going to be any bragging in heaven. You're all coming the same way. You come by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and your acceptance of that or you don't come at all, period. You're saved by grace. In fact, you remember what Isaiah said? All your good works to try to earn salvation are like filthy rags to God. I've been told in the Old Testament parallel of Isaiah's day, that was a phrase that meant filthy menstrual cloths. Enough said. God said, that's what your works are like if you're trying to earn it. Filthy rags. That's why the gospel of our, our good works is such good news. We don't have to earn our salvation. In fact, we can't. The opposite is true. It's to those who do not work to earn it who actually receive the salvation when they believe the gospel. Paul said in Romans 4, verse 4, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. Paul said, you, you want to try to earn this on your own, then you're going to get what your work produces. You're going to remain lost in your sin and separated from God forever. That's what you want. That's the wage you can earn. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. You see, it's this non-works approach to God that separates Christianity apart from every other religion and systematic approach to a deity. Dane Ortland, vice president of Bible publishing for Crossway, in his book, Defiant Grace, said Christianity is the unreligion. It turns all our religious instincts on their heads. The ancient Greeks told us to be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. 
Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it is the one faith whose founder tells us, don't come by your doing, come by bringing your need. Every other religion in the world is a work system of some kind. God said it's the opposite. Our need is to be saved from sin, and there is no DIY channel for salvation. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. People, that's good news. It's the good news of the gospel, that I don't have to earn this salvation. God gave it to me as a gift. And not only good news that our good works can't save us, but the gospel is the good news that our good works do glorify God. Paul said in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, works that would glorify him. People, here's something Satan doesn't want you to know. The world notices when Christians live out the gospel. In the smallest of ways and the greatest of ways, the world knows that Christianity is different. Two articles I want to give you a synopsis of today from 2011, just a few years ago, that help us to see that while our good works can't save us, our good works, God's work in us for Christ after we're saved, is making a difference in the world. The first was an article that appeared in the New York Times. Nicholas Kristof wrote an article called Evangelicals Without Blowhards. Now, titles like that catch my attention. So I read it. New York Times editorialist Nicholas Kristof wrote a column praising the work of many evangelical Christians. Kristof, by the way, is not a believer by his own admission. Kristof begins by noting that at times evangelical leaders do act hypocritically and don't reflect Christ. However, he said, as he goes on to write, in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others who do. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their income to charities, mostly church-related. More important, they're disproportionately likely to go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetrics, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, genocide, and on and on. He said, some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics who truly live their faith I'm not particularly religious myself, he wrote, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. Here's a guy who's an unbeliever, cynical in himself, who said, in my research to write these articles for the New York Times, I've encountered so many evangelical Christians who are living this out, I can no longer deny that something is different about these people. And it sickens me to go to a party where I hear people putting them down. Or how about this one? Nayal Ferguson, who's a British historian, he's a professor at Harvard University. 
He wrote a book called Civilization, the West and the Rest. And in that book, he tells about an interview he did with an atheistic, communist, Chinese official in the Chinese government. Listen to what he wrote. I interviewed a member of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, an arm of the Communist Party in China. This unnamed Chinese official, which had to remain unnamed for obvious reasons, praised the role of Christianity in the Western world. This is what he said. One of the things we were asked to look into was what accounted for the success of the West all over the world. This is this Chinese guy talking. We studied everything we could from the historical, political, economic, and cultural perspective. And at first, we thought that it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. But in the past 20 years, we've realized that the heart of your culture is your religion. Christianity is what's made the difference. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. It was Christianity that did this. We don't have any doubts. Now, you're not going to see stuff like that published too much. But the fact of the matter is, Christians who are living out the good news are making a difference all over the world. Last service, after the last service, I had someone sharing with me about a guy they knew who went to China and was, was got in a conversation with one of these Chinese officials, and he said that they have been examining this because they're seeing the difference that Christianity has made in the West. People, who leads the world in humanitarian efforts? Who shows up to provide relief in natural disasters? Who stands up as the, as the banner to defend human rights around the world? Historically, it's not the Muslims, it's not the Buddhists, it's not the Hindus, it's not the secularists, it's Christians. And do you know why that is? Because God created us for that. That in a world of sin with so much hurt, God has put people with his heart and mind in the world as a gift to the world, and through those lives, he said, I'm going to show the world it's me. I care about what's going on in these things. I created you for that. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul told the Ephesian Christians, we were created for this. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's handiwork. We're not stamped out of a, an assembly line. God crafted every one of us. The words literally mean made with a purpose, designed in detail for a purpose. 
created in Christ Jesus, created physically and given life, made alive in Christ spiritually in order to fulfill a God-given purpose. Why are so many lives empty in the world today? Because they don't even understand they're made, much less made with a purpose. To do good works. Works is the word that indicates an effect of what we believe, an effect of faith. So in other words, the works of our life flow out of a saving faith that's effective. It's the same message the Lord's brother James declared in his letter in James 2. You remember verse 14? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The word dead is useless. It's a faith that doesn't produce anything. No works. It may not be saving faith. People, there's only two options. If we are saved because we believe the good news of Jesus Christ, and Christ comes to live in us, and we were created by God to do the good works, but there are no good works of God that he's producing in our life, Either we aren't really saved and Christ isn't there, or we are living in total disobedience. It can be the kind of faith that the demonic world has. Demons have faith, but it doesn't save them. James went on to say in James 2, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The demons know the truth about God. They believe it, but they're not saved. In fact, they shudder every time they think of it because because of who God is and his reality, they know what it means for their inevitable, ultimate, pending destruction. James went on to say in James 2, verse 20, you foolish person, do you you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies in Joshua's day and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You're saved by faith alone, but if that faith is really there, it will produce a something for God out of that life. God will produce it. If you believe it, there will be evidence of it. For example, I know every one of you have faith today because you can't live without it. Every one of you that are here, unless you walked to church, believed that if you got in your car and drove at breakneck speed, that if you had to slow down or stop, your brakes would actually work. 
And so you got in the car, you turned it on, and you started driving. Believing what? If I need them, they'll be there. You see, your works proved what you believed. Otherwise, you'd have never done it. And I know you believed it because you're sitting here, and most of you didn't walk. Do you believe that God saved you by faith and created you to do good works for him to bring glory to his name? Well, if you believe that, then you'll get in the car and drive. You'll give your life to Jesus completely, and you'll say, God, do those works in me and through me. And the evidence coming out of that will be an assurance to you and a witness to everybody. That's not him. That's God doing that. That's God doing that. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, so we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Christians are going to appear before the bima seat, it's called, the judgment seat of Christ. It's not to determine whether or not you're getting into heaven or not. The bima is very different than the great white throne. The great white throne is one you don't want to be at. That's where you're going to go if you haven't trusted Christ. But if you've trusted Christ, you're going to go before the bema seat. The bema is where you're going to be judged for the works you've done for God, what you've given your life to him for, what he's done in you and through you. And based on that, you're going to get reward. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then we, he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, it's important to remember that the reward is not for us. By the way, we have some electrical issues. Once in a while, the lights blink. They're trying to, trying to fix it. Um, the reward is not for us. I assure you, when you get to heaven, there is no reward you'll ever receive greater than Christ himself. So anything Jesus would give you by way of reward would seem like trinkets in comparison to that. So what's the reward for? People, when you see Jesus and all he's done for you, and you find yourself there in his presence, you're going to want to have an armload of reward to walk up and lay at his feet and say, Lord, here, this is yours. You did this through me. This is for your glory. Can you imagine coming into heaven at that moment and having nothing to give to Jesus because you haven't let your life be used for him in any way? And by the way, it's never too late to completely give yourself to Christ and let him begin that work he created to do through you. Whatever it is. The reward is not for us, it's for Jesus. See, that's why Paul said earlier in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be 
for the praise of his glory. Pastor Phil wrote this week on day four in the workbook, we aren't called to do good deeds so that people will think we are good people. We're called to look for opportunities to let our light shine so that people will ultimately glorify our Father in heaven. We won't always know what effect our actions will have on others. We obey out of love for God and let the actions open doors for relationship, conversation, and evangelism. I heard this week of a lady at a store who was short a dollar or so to pay her bill. A homeless guy came up and offered to pay it. The lady drove over to the church, saw me in the parking lot. Isn't that interesting? A homeless guy pays her bill, and her first thought is, does anybody in the church know who this guy is? There was a direct correlation between the fact of a good deed and it might somehow be connected to Christ. Amazing to me. We are the body of Christ. He lives in us. We are his presence in the world. Phil said we obey out of love for God. Which is why our memory verse this week is so perfect. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Created to do good works, works that bring glory to God. People, that's good news. That's the gospel. This past weekend marked the 71st anniversary of the liberation of the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. It marked the 71st anniversary of its closing. Johnny V. Miller, former seminary professor, missionary, pastor of Cypress Bible Church in Houston, said a while ago in a sermon, when I was a teenager, I became fascinated, appalled, and grieved by the literature of the Holocaust. One scene that haunts me is a picture from Auschwitz above the entryway to the concentration camp where the words, Arbeit macht frei. The same thing stood above the camp at Dachau. It means work makes free. Work will liberate you and give you freedom. It was a lie. It was a false hope. The Nazis made the people believe hard work would equal liberation, but the promised liberation was horrifying suffering and even death. Arbeit macht frei. One reason that phrase haunts me, he said, is because it's the spiritual lie of this age. It is a satanic lie. It's a religious lie. It is a false hope. An impossible dream for many people in the world. They believe their good works will be great enough to outweigh their bad works, allowing them to stand before God in eternity and say, you owe me the right to enter your heaven. Arbeit macht frei. It is the message of every false religion and approach to God outside of Christianity. Salvation. In Jesus Christ is what sets us free, free from sin and death. It's a gospel of grace, not works. But our works have a point. Our works have a place. This rest in God is what the whole concept of the Sabbath is about. I hope you'll take some time to re read day five in your workbook again. Very important. God created the Sabbath in Genesis to be the rest from his works after six days of creation. 
And then he instituted the Sabbath as a day in Old Testament law. The idea was that everyone needs to be looking forward to resting from their works. The seventh day was set apart for that, and everyone was reminded every week, I'm resting from my works. The Sabbath rest that God wanted his people to search and hunger for was not a day. It was a person. That when you come to believe in this person, you will rest from your working and rest in him. The Sabbath is not a day. It is a person, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in Colossians 2, verse 16, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. That's why Phil wrote this week on day five, the gospel removes the need for us to work for our salvation. A heartfelt understanding of the gospel keeps us from trying to repay our loving Father. We seek rest, the assurance of peace with God, belonging to him eternally, and that assurance is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that way, Jesus is our eternal Sabbath. But our works have a purpose. Not to save us, but to bring glory to God. The good news of the gospel is we can't earn this salvation. It's a gift. But if we've received it, God wants to use our lives to do good works that will glorify him, bring reward to us, that we will have the joy of laying at his feet when we see him face to face. People, that's good news. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are called to live by his grace, this good news for all to see. Father, I'm learning so much in this. I, I thought I understood basically what the gospel was about, but it's so much deeper and richer than I ever imagined. And I want to thank you for all these dear people who are hanging in with us every day, doing their work in the workbooks, coming to their small groups and classes, who are coming to these messages and listening online. And I pray, God, that through all of this, you'll give us a deeper appreciation for the immensity of this gift and the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, a good news we are called to proclaim and to live out for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.